This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Well, we might get underway. First of all, thank you, um, everybody, uh, very much for coming. It's a good turnout, and I think that's because um, it's a very topical uh, and um, interesting subject matter for this evening. Um, it's an evening hosted, uh, we're happy at Gilbert and Tobin to um, host the evening on behalf of the uh, Caldor Centre for Refugee Law and Policy, and um, which is doing a really, really wonderful job in bringing to um, public attention uh, the issues, um, and they you know, grow in number weekly, um, the issues um, on this um, you know, very important subject matter. Um, before we introduce what is really a quite incredible panel that the Caldor Centre has been able to put together. I just wanted to um, give you a little bit of background on what, as I understand it, is the um, current situation uh, with the uh, Sri Lankan Tamils that have been detained aboard uh, an Australian vessel in the Indian Ocean. The saga started on the 13th of June 2014 when an Indian vessel departed from Pondicherry in India. Uh, we understand there are 157 people aboard, uh, comprising 78 men, 29 women and 50 children. They're all Sri Lankan nationals, uh, and I think they're all ethnic Tamils, but I'm not uh, sure about that. I'm sure somebody will correct me if that's wrong. Um, they wish to seek um, asylum in Australia because they fear persecution uh, if they're returned to Sri Lanka. On the 29th of June, so after a couple of weeks of sailing, the, uh, they, the engine of the vessel failed. It became unseaworthy uh, and it was intercepted by an Australian government border protection ship called the Ocean Protector. Uh, at the time, it was between 12 and 24 miles from Christmas Island. The ship was boarded by Australian border protection officials. They searched the vessel. They transferred the asylum seekers to the Ocean Protector and they asked them four questions. The questions were all about their identity and their nationality and their language. They denied them the opportunity to make an application for any protection visa and they denied them access to legal advice. The current situation for the people aboard the Ocean Protector is that they've been detained in one of three locked cabins which have no windows. One of the cabins is for men and two of the cabins are for women and children and families, of course, have been separated. Their personal belongings, other than what they're wearing, have been confiscated and phones uh, and communication devices have also been confiscated and they're not permitted any communication with the outside world. On the 1st of July 2014, the National Security Committee of the Australian Cabinet decided that the passengers, the asylum seekers, should be taken to a place other than Australia. The government has announced it doesn't plan to involuntarily release the passengers directly to Sri Lanka, but it's not said what it is planning to do with them uh, or how long it plans to detain them. So with that bit of background, let me introduce the panel. Um, actually, just before I do, just very quickly, um, if people could just turn their uh, ringers off on their mobile phones. But people are very welcome to tweet and encouraged to tweet. And um, the hashtag that you should use, um, I don't understand what this means, but the hashtag, <laughs> the hashtag you should use is High Court 153. High Court 153. Apparently there are others, but that's the one that is recommended that you uh, should use. 
Um, the format for this evening is um, um, I'll ask the panel um, a few questions about um, uh, some of the legal issues involved uh, in the current High Court proceedings and um, that'll take about half an hour and then um, we'll open up to the floor for questions that you might have uh, for the rest of the evening. So the panel, first of all, um, sitting in the middle in the grey shirt is Professor George Williams, who I'm sure many people are familiar with uh, from his um, uh, legal um, fame as well as um, his position as a commentator in the media. He's the Anthony Mason Professor and Foundation Director of the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law at the University of New South Wales. He's written and edited a number of books, uh, including Australian Constitutional Law and Theory and the Oxford Companion to the High Court of Australia. And he's appeared as a barrister in the High Court in a number of cases over the past two decades, including cases on asylum seekers and the rule of law. Immediately to my uh, left, your right, is Jane McAdam. Uh, Jane's the Scientia Professor of Law and the Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales, which was established just last year. She holds an Australian Research Council Future Fellowship. She's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution at Washington, D.C., and a research associate at the University of Oxford's Refugee Studies Centre. She's also the joint editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law. And her eighth book, this time for a general readership rather than academic audience, is due out in September. And it's entitled Refugees, Why Seeking Asylum is Legal and Australian Policies Are Not. So I think we know what that book's going to be about. <laughs> Jane serves on a number of international committees, including the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement, the International Law Association Committee on International Law and Sea Level Rise, and the Asia-Pacific Environmental Migration Network Advisory Board. She's undertaken consultancies for the UNHCR and various governments on issues relating to forced migration and international law, and in 2013 was appointed as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. Next along is um, Ed Santo. Um, Ed Santo is the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. PIAC is an independent, non-profit law and policy organisation. It promotes human rights and social justice through strategic litigation, policy development and law reform, and, and education and training. Ed has overall responsibility for PIAC's work, including uh, defining and pursuing the organisation's strategic vision and working with partner organisations. He's got particular expertise in human rights, administrative, constitutional law, uh, and Discrimination and Freedom of Information. Ed's also a Senior Visiting Fellow at the University of New South Wales and he serves on a number of boards and committees including the National Pro Bono Resource Centre and the Federal Government's uh, Information Advisory Committee. In 2009 he was presented with an Australian Leadership Award. And finally, uh, on the end of the table is Dr Tim Stevens, who's an Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Sydney. Tim has qualifications in Law and Geography. Um, and he teaches and his research focus is on international law and the law of the sea. He's the author with Don Rothwell of a leading textbook on the law of the sea and he's a frequent media commentator on maritime issues. So I think you'll see between the four distinguished people we have here at the front table, we've got the field covered when it comes to these um, current um, asylum seekers aboard the Ocean Protector. So with no further ado, I'll start by asking the first question, which is I'm going to direct the first question to Ed. Uh, because um, Ed um, has done some considerable research for PIAC on um, the uh, recent war in Sri Lanka. So, Ed, if you could tell us, please, what the current situation is in Sri Lanka, um, what the position is for, uh, Sri, Lankan, uh, for people, Sri Lankans seeking to leave uh, 
without uh, authority? And what were the findings that PIAC made um, about um, the situation for Tamils in Sri Lanka? Well, thanks for that introduction. Um, it's, it's a complex situation to go into any country. Um, if I were to go to Sri Lanka, um, especially in the south, uh, I no doubt uh, as a tourist would have a very enjoyable time. Uh, we in Australia know Sri Lanka primarily uh, via watching their cricket team when um, they play against the Australian cricket team. But like many, if not all countries, the situation on the ground for particular groups is, is very, very different. Uh, and there's a picture that I, I guess has developed from the work of the United Nations, a number of uh, nation states and a number of NGOs that is very, very concerning. I'll start with the um, UN Human Rights Council, which met in March of this year uh, and had a very large number of items on its agenda. Um, but the Sri Lankan human rights situation was the most controversial issue and the one that got the most attention of the diplomats. Uh, and it was, it was a very, very difficult issue. Um, but ultimately, the uh, UN resolved to establish a formal investigation into uh, the human rights um, uh, violations that have been occurring uh, over, um, uh, particularly over the last 10 years, that are, but that are continuing to occur now. And in making that decision, what the UN was uh, uh, recognising were that the allegations that have been arising from uh, Sri Lanka and from NGOs like ourselves have a serious degree of credibility to them. So turning then to some of the NGO reports, there is uh, the work of my own organisation. I'll come back to that uh, in a moment. Um, there's work by a range of other highly, highly respected organisations. Human Rights Watch, for example, uh, put out a report called uh, We Will Teach You a Lesson, uh, which contained detailed accounts of 75 cases of alleged rape and sexual abuse that occurred from 2006 to 2012. Um, more recently, uh, Yasmin Suker, a very, very um, well-respected uh, former UN official working with the uh, England and Wales Bar Human Rights Committee, put out a report um, entitled Sexual Violence and Torture in Sri Lanka, which again detailed, uh, I guess, the systematic um, rape, uh, torture, and other forms of sexual violence that um, is continuing to occur uh, in Sri Lanka. There's um, the report of the International Commission of Jurists, which details the breakdown on the rule of law. And then, of course, as has been noted in our own media, uh, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has itself, in its submissions to the UN uh, Universal uh, Periodic, Periodic Review, it has pointed to ongoing human rights uh, abuses in Sri Lanka. So, so what does this all point to? I guess the, the notion that uh, Sri Lanka is a country at peace is perhaps true in a very, very narrow sense, but certainly misleading. People still suffer persecution and much worse in Sri Lanka. Broadly speaking, I'll come to the detail in a sec, uh, but broadly speaking, it is much worse if you're Tamil or if you're a Muslim, but others are still at risk. Uh, I think your second question, Stephen, was um, about whether it's uh, lawful to seek asylum. Uh, and the short answer to that is effectively no um, from uh, Sri Lankan law. So uh, the Immigrants and Emigrants Act, um, 1929 of Sri Lanka, makes it illegal for Sri Lankans to leave the country without departing from an official port and, and, and also illegal to return in the same way. 
so, so your last question was, what, what were the findings of um, PIAC's uh, International Crimes Evidence Project report? Well, our, our report focused on the final phase of the Civil War, which was in 2008 and 2009. Uh, and we investigated uh, alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by both sides, so the Sri Lankan government and the Tamil Tigers. Uh, and in summary, I've got the full report here, it's 250 pages, so I'll give a very brief summary. Um, we found that there were reasonable grounds to suspect that on the Sri Lankan government side, uh, there was uh, very, very serious uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity committed. For example, uh, bombing using heavy artillery of civilian areas where civilians had been encouraged to congregate. Uh, there was a denial of humanitarian assistance, the most basic humanitarian assistance in the form of food and medical supplies in those uh, uh, civilian areas or enclaves. Uh, and there were also very <coughs> serious and credible allegations of uh, extrajudicial killing, sexual violence, and torture. On the Tamil Tiger side, uh, there were similar, very, very serious allegations, particularly, and credible allegations, particularly in relation to the use of human shields, that is, civilians being used as human shields, and uh, uh, children being used um, as soldiers. So to bring all that together, the reverberations from the Civil War continue to echo very, very strongly in Sri Lanka. And we also have found credible allegations of ongoing violations, particularly in the area of uh, rape and sexual violence and um, what, is no, what is known as um, white, white band disappearances, enforced disappearances. In other words. <coughs> Frankly, uh, when you put all this together, it would be shocking if in this context, uh, Sri Lanka was anything other than a refugee-producing country. Thanks, Ed. Um, I'll do my next question to Jane. So, Jane, um, the idea of um, returning people to a place where they might suffer harm is known as reformment. What are Australia's obligations, or the international obligations, in relation to reformment? Um, the government seems to be arguing uh, in this case that non-reformment uh, obligations don't apply if you're outside Australian territory, uh, if you could comment on that. Um, and to what extent have the international obligation of non-reformment been incorporated into Australian law? And so what cause of action, really, do these asylum seekers um, have? Thanks, Stephen, for that question. Um, well, the principle of non-reformment is an obligation arising under a number of international treaties that Australia has voluntarily signed up to. And something we might come to uh, subsequently, is that it has also crystallised as a norm of customary international law, which means it applies irrespective of whether or not a country has actually signed up to those treaties. Under the Refugee Convention, the principle precludes Australia from sending people back to a place where they have a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or their membership of a particular social group. Human rights law essentially extends that even further to say that countries like Australia cannot send people back to a place where they are at risk of torture, and that's by anyone and for any reason. It's not confined to one of those five refugee convention grounds. And furthermore, Australia is precluded from sending a person back to a place where they have uh, are at real risk of arbitrary deprivation of life or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Again, 
provided the state is unable or unwilling to provide protection, and it doesn't have to be for one of those five grounds mentioned in the Refugee Convention. So that's the obligation. Um, the question is, well, where does, where does it apply? Does it only apply if somebody arrives on our territory or in our territorial waters? Or is it an obligation that extends to anywhere that Australian officials might act, whether that be um, on an aeroplane, on the high seas, wherever? And here, of course, this question is, well, outside Australia's territorial waters. There is virtually uniform authority among international law scholars, um, as well as the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and governments themselves, that those obligations do apply extraterritorially. In other words, the question is not where, but rather who is asserting control. So if an Australian official or somebody that the Australian government has contracted to perform a certain official act, um, if, wherever they are acting, whether it be on a boat on the high seas or in our territory, those obligations are engaged. So Australia remains responsible if they violate those obligations. Only the United States has said that the Refugee Convention doesn't have that extraterritorial application. And that's the basis on which the US justifies its interdiction and expulsion of Haitians and Cubans, for instance. The US Supreme Court upheld that view, but again, it, it wasn't, uh, to borrow Guy Goodwin-Gill's language, the US Supreme Court was not competent, in two senses of the word, <laughs> to rule on the international law uh, obligations of the United States. And in any sense, they were really interpreting a, a domestic statute. Um, UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, at the time and subsequently has spoken out uh, very strongly that the US interpretation is wrong as a matter of international law, and not one country has ever contradicted UNHCR. In international law terms, that is a very strong tacit <coughs> acceptance that UNHCR's position is correct and the US is out there on a limb. Finally, the question of the, to what extent are these international obligations part of Australian law? Well, of course, that's something that the, the High Court is being asked to consider. Um, one of, I mean, at the moment, in our Migration Act, Australia is precluded from returning people to those forms of, of harm I mentioned. But of course, the Migration Act isn't engaged in this particular case because <coughs> it only relates to actions carried out in Australian territory. And of course, here, unlike international law, the Migration Act doesn't apply. So uh, one question might be, to what extent are those international obligations part of our common law? And again, these are, these are going to be really interesting uh, questions to see how the court might uh, resolve them. We've got some authority, but in a different context, and I think it would be open to the court to, to you know, change the, the authority we've got so far. Thanks, Shane. Um, <coughs> George, I'll ask my next question to you. Um, in some respects, we've been here before. Um, in 2001, um, the whole um, sort of anti-asylum seeker project began with the arrival of the Tampa, and that led to a case in the full federal court called Vidalis. And um, there's a lot of judgments in that case, and I haven't put them all together, but my general understanding of that case is that the court there said um, that the Commonwealth had power to intercept... Um, uh, vessels and control uh, the national borders. 
Um, and interestingly, um, one of the judges in the majority there was then Justice French, now Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. I'm wondering if you uh, can provide some comments on, does that case dispose of the issue? Is that all there is to it? Or is there some other issue that the High Court here um, needs to look at? Well, certainly it's been suggested that uh, this is uh, Tony Abbott's Tampa moment. And uh, you can be sure that Tony Abbott hopes this will be his Tampa moment, because in that case, it was a convincing win for the Howard government. And not only did the full federal court find on behalf of the Howard government that the Tampa rescuees could be removed to whatever place the government wished to remove them to, but the High Court refused to hear the case. Um, it uh, went to no hearing in the High Court, and as a result, that was the end of the matter. But this case is very different, and there are strong reasons why we won't have the same path. We don't know what the outcome will be, but we can expect, I think, that the High Court is likely to hear it. What happened in the Tampa case, it was a different way of bringing the proceedings. It was what's called a habeas corpus application, uh, show me the body, uh, show me the lawful means for these people to be detained. And that habeas corpus application lost in the full federal court, and it was on its way to the High Court to be determined. But there was an injunction in place, and uh, the Commonwealth started to play hardball and said to the Victorian Council of Civil Liberties and Eric Vidalis that those people would be personally liable for the costs of the naval vessel if they sought to maintain the injunction. And they risked losing their houses, their livelihoods, their property. And as a result, uh, those people let the injunction lapse, and the rescuees were actually taken off the naval vessel and taken to Nauru and New Zealand. When it got to the High Court, the High Court said, well, we can't hear this matter anymore. These people aren't being detained by Australia because the injunction that meant they were detained had lapsed. And as a result, the High Court said, we would have liked to have determined this matter. There are real legal issues that need to be heard about executive power and other matters. But uh, these people are now beyond our jurisdiction. So I suppose the first lesson here is, is once these people go beyond our borders, don't expect the High Court to intervene. And so that's why it's absolutely crucial that that injunction is maintained. And here what's very important is the people bringing this case are not doing so as lawyers bringing, us, bringing a habeas corpus application for which they may be personally liable. And uh, I see Jay Williams is here, one of the lawyers. I'm glad, I'm sure he's glad to know he won't lose his house out of this, as indeed might have happened in that earlier case. But the lawyers in this case are actually seeking to represent those people directly. So if there's a loss, it's the asylum seekers that might be liable for costs. So the lawyers themselves aren't vulnerable and the case uh, can proceed to hearing in the High Court. But as to what might happen in the High Court, whether Tampa will be repeated, well, that really it depends upon, again, a different set of legal issues. Here, the Migration Act is not engaged. Uh, we've got instead uh, maritime legislation that we'll hear about in a moment, and that means it may well proceed on a different path. The High Court, in any event, is not beholden to the federal court decision in the Tampa case. It's it's new ground. It could go the other way. There are no precedents that bind the court at all in this area, so it's open for determination. And even though Justice French and now Chief Justice French uh, decided the way that would seem adverse to the interests of the asylum seekers in that earlier case, he himself is not bound by his earlier decision. And in fact, uh, in one earlier instance dealing with the Gillard government's Malaysian plan, he frustrated the Gillard government by deciding in a way they thought was entirely inconsistent with his earlier federal court judgments. So I suppose the bottom line is Tony Abbott may have his Tampa moment, but it's not going to be because of any precedent from the Tampa case. It needs to be freshly argued. The issues themselves lend themselves to that resolution. And uh, we really can't say with any confidence, based upon that decision, how this might ultimately play out. Thanks, George. So let's start looking at the issues. And we'll start with um, Tim um, and dealing with maritime issues. 
So, um, as I mentioned uh, in the introduction, the boat was intercepted between 12 and 24 miles offshore from Christmas Island, which is Australian territory. So what is the law that applies there and what powers does the Commonwealth have there under maritime law? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. So I think we've, we've heard very... Hello. You've heard very uh, neatly from Jane and from George how these issues have really crystallised in terms of Australian law. So the government is being very deliberate in uh, seeking to ensure that the Migration Act doesn't apply. So by keeping these people outside of Australian territory, the question becomes really one of the Maritime Powers Act, which uh, George mentioned. Uh, and to what extent does this Act, which only became an Act of Parliament last year, uh, enable Commonwealth officials to detain and to expel uh, aliens, foreign nationals? And we simply don't know the, the answer to that question. The, um, I don't know whether anyone here has looked at the Maritime Powers Act. Well, I know some people have, uh, including, <laughs> including counsel for the, for the, the plaintiffs. Um, it's a relatively short bit of legislation, 122 sections. It's a fairly inscrutable bit of legislation that to me, does not really uh, serve the purpose, actually, that it was designed to do, which is to consolidate and make clear the powers of Commonwealth government officials beyond the low watermark uh, in Australia. The Maritime Powers Act certainly enables the Commonwealth to respond to certain breaches of Australian law outside Australian territory. Uh, that includes in the contiguous zone. Under the law of the sea and under the Maritime Powers Act, the Commonwealth can interdict vessels uh, that are suspected of breaching immigration, tax, customs or quarantine matters within the contiguous zone. That is a zone between 12 and 24 nautical miles from the coast. But does that power extend to allow the Commonwealth to detain people uh, outside the contiguous zone on the high seas for an indefinite period? Does it extend to uh, allowing the Commonwealth to push these people back to another place? Query that. And also, to what extent does refugee law need to, need to be added to the mix? If we are interpreting the Maritime Powers Act consistent with the law of the sea and international law generally, could it be relevant to bring in some of the points that, that Jane made about Australia's accepted uh, non-refoulement obligations, absolutely accepted um, legislated uh, obligations in the Migration Act? Uh, so it's really interesting questions and uh, yeah, a lot will turn simply on statutory interpretation. What does the Maritime Powers Act allow the Commonwealth uh, to do? And in that respect, it's quite different from Tampa, which was very much a case about executive action as opposed to uh, statutory uh, authorised um, action. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, Jane, we've heard the expression enhanced screening uh, used um, a little bit recently in relation to um, screening, of uh, screening of asylum seekers who seek to enter into Australia. Could you tell us what it means, what it really looks like as a practical matter and how does it compare with the ordinary kind of screening that we have with, uh, for asylum seekers, which, if this is enhanced screening, ordinary screening must be diminished screening. Um, how, how, does that, how does enhanced screening uh, comply with Australia's obligations <coughs> towards refugees? 
Right, so the principle of non-refoulement that I was talking about before, how do we know when that's engaged? Well, quite clearly, we need to have a process in place to determine on an individual basis whether or not somebody engages Australia's protection obligations. Are they a refugee or are they otherwise in need of our protection? So normally, you would have a process of refugee status determination. And that requires a case-by-case -case analysis of somebody's claims that uh, requires evidence to be put forward um, by the government as well as by the asylum seeker as to country of origin conditions, things like Ed was talking about in relation to Sri Lanka. Uh, your personal circumstances, why is it that you in particular can't go back? Uh, namely looking at the situation of other people like you or past persecution you might have suffered, all those things to determine in the individual case, do you have a well-founded fear of being persecuted? Is there a real chance that you will be <coughs> harmed in, in that kind of a way? As you can imagine, uh, this isn't a, a process that can be done instantaneously. Um, and also, it ordinarily, and, and certainly best practices, that you have the opportunity to have the decision reviewed on its merits. So another decision maker can check, you know, with fresh eyes, is, is this really, is the evidence looked at the right way and so on. And again, you can then apply for judicial review to determine whether or not there was an error of law in the way the decision maker reached his or her uh, decision. And normally you'd have access to lawyers and, and legal assistance in, you know, in some way. Enhanced screening is, um, I guess it depends on your perspective as to whether <laughs> it's enhanced or diminished. Um, what we understand has happened on the boat is that people will ask four questions. What is your name? What is your date of birth? What is your country of citizenship? What is your preferred language? That's it. Not, why have you come here? Do you fear persecution? What is the situation you fled from? <coughs> Nothing. No access to lawyers. No access to UNHCR. Maybe not even access to an interpreter, so that's helpful. And certainly no access to independent merits review or judicial review. In no way, shape or form could that be described as an adequate means of determining whether or not Australia's protection obligations are engaged. To just, I mean, just to add to this, um, Australia had since about 2012, I think, been undertaking an enhanced screening process for Sri Lankan asylum seekers who arrived here. Um, the questions were a little more extensive than that. But in any event, the government itself said this is not a full refugee status determination interview. We're just seeing if there's a plausible claim that might be there or a claim with substance. These are tests totally unknown to refugee law. They're, they're essentially made-up tests. And um, I would argue they're inconsistent with international law and, and really cannot in any way satisfy me as an international lawyer that um, we are abiding by our good faith, uh, by our obligations in good faith. So I'm not necessarily saying that every single person on that boat will be exposed to persecution or other serious forms of harm. The point is we don't know. And the point is really not whether they definitely will be, but whether there is a, a real chance that they might be. None of that can be assessed through a, a very cursory questioning like 
we, we know is happening. That leads, I think, um, to another question for George. Um, Tim mentioned earlier um, the, uh, the use of executive power under Section 61 of the Constitution as a ground, and that's certainly something that the Commonwealth is relying on here. So what if you could comment on what the limits are of the Commonwealth's executive power under Section 61, and in particular, um, if you might comment as well in that context on this decision apparently by the uh, National Security Committee of the Cabinet um, that, um, that um, these people were, should be taken to a place other than Australia. Sure, and uh, look, before I mention executive power, I might just make a quick comment on, on enhanced screening. And uh, it seems that this word enhanced keeps creeping in no. a lot these days when governments actually want to do something that uh, is really it's pretty worse. awful. Yeah. Well, the, the parallels I keep thinking of is, of course, waterboarding in the US was enhanced interrogation. Mm. And I don't know what this word enhanced means, but whenever I see it in the government document these days, I get very worried because uh, it inevitably means exactly the opposite of what is being suggested. But on executive power, um, the way this case is likely to be fought is this. The government needs to provide lawful authority to enable it to remove these people outside of this area to another country. And if that lawful authority is not going to be provided by the Maritime Powers Act, then the alternative for the government will be it has what is called a non-statutory executive power to do so. That is, there's no legislation that justifies, but the inherent powers of a government, as set down by the Constitution, let that government remove these people as an exercise of the sovereign rights of the government to do so. Now, the questions that the High Court will face are, uh, firstly, does that power even exist? Um, does the government today have the ability to pick up asylum seekers at sea uh, and remove them beyond our borders to a place of the government's choosing? Now, that was the issue in the Tampa case. And in that case, uh, Justice French said, yes, the power exists. It hasn't been extinguished by the Migration Act. And as a result, it meant that the asylum seekers there could be removed. Now, the High Court will have to answer the same question, and Justice French will have to answer the same question, but in a slightly different context. The context here is not whether the power is removed by the Migration Act, but whether it's removed by the, by the Maritime Powers Act. So if nothing else, that gives Justice French a plausible reason to decide differently. He doesn't need to contradict himself. He can just say the context is different. And that's very important in these cases for the lawyers to be able to say, well, it's a different context. You don't need to lose face to suggest you're doing things differently. It's a different context. If it turns out, as is possible, that yes, this executive power enables the removal of these people, then the next step would be to argue, well, even if the power it exists, it's limited in certain ways that mean it can't be used in this instance. And the Constitution says in Section 75.5 that any exercise of a power by the officer of the Commonwealth is subject to certain forms of review. And those forms of review may well include uh, review for procedural fairness, uh, and as a result, natural justice may need to be required. The argument would be natural justice is not required unless these people are given a fair hearing, their claims to refugee status are heard. So the big issue there is can you read in a right to procedural fairness uh, if this power is exercised? And there the authorities go both ways. Uh, some years ago it was held uh, in a case called M61, uh, a Christmas Island case, that yes, you would read procedural fairness in in a situation where people are being detained on Christmas Island without the prospect of fair review. In a later case, however, called S10, the High Court held that there was no right to procedural fairness in a different context. And what it shows is it really is context dependent. It depends upon the words of the statute interacting with executive power. This is a highly uncertain area. And like everything you've probably heard tonight, 
you've probably got the impression that this is not a case that is easily decided by the existing authorities. We've got a new statute that's inscrutable. We've got an executive power that's largely undetermined, uh, based upon a federal court case that uh, has no precedential weight. And uh, it means that this is very much open uh, to go in different directions. It's not one that you can easily say that executive power will uh, resolve the matter one way or the other. Thanks. We've got a panel that's sitting firmly on the fence. Um, We're lawyers, after all. <laughs> uh, Tim, um, we've got a bunch of people here who picked up at sea and put aboard a ship and essentially imprisoned in these three cells without um, ability to go anywhere or communicate with anybody. And um, we don't know how long they're going to be held for or where they're going to be taken. Why isn't that an act of piracy? Yeah, so look, it's not piracy uh, because piracy is the kind of Pirates of the Caribbean style piracy where uh, one vessel attacks another vessel for private gain. But this is quite an extraordinary and probably unprecedented action. Uh, just imagine uh, if this vessel was suspected of drug running or arms running or some other illegal activity. The vessel would be brought to shore in Australia and the person suspected of engaging in the illegal activity would be facing prosecution and um, other hangers-on, as it were, on the vessel, I don't know, stowaways or whoever they may be, uh, you know, wouldn't be in prison. They, they, they would uh, be able to uh, enter the, the community. Uh, but we are treating these people in a, quite a radical way that, that I haven't really seen in state practice at all. It's really quite um, extraordinary. As a matter of the law of the sea, uh, in my view, it is questionable, highly questionable that Australia has the authority to continue to detain these people on the high seas, uh, and I query whether they have the authority to, uh, to remove them elsewhere. And there are also question marks around the treatment of the, the vessel. So as we understand it, the, the Indian flagged vessel got into distress of some sort. Um, that actually engages Australian, Australia's maritime safety obligations as well. Uh, and these people do need to be delivered to a place of safety uh, under those, those obligations. Uh, my view is that a place of safety is not on board uh, the ocean protector, this customs vessel uh, on the high seas. The most convenient place of safety uh, is Australian territory. Uh, uh, no more than uh, an hour or a couple of hours steaming uh, to, to the coast. Thanks, you. Finally, Ed. Having regard to everything we've heard tonight, has the Australian government here committed the perfect crime? It seems to have um, acted beyond the reach of the Migration Act and within the power of, or potentially within the power of the um, Maritime Powers Act. Is this the perfect crime? Well, well, the short answer to that question is only if the High Court lets them get away with it. Um, my, my area of specialisation is administrative law. Uh, which sometimes makes me bad company and tardy. Um, <laughs> but I feel that administrative law actually uh, can instruct us a lot in, in answering the legal questions that arise here. And so, so those of you um, who are not so interested in administrative law, this might be your opportunity to tweet a summary of some of the things that uh, my colleagues have said on the panel. <laughs> if the Commonwealth is permitted to do this, it must be able to point to some lawful authority, either the executive power or uh, some power derived from legislation. My own view, and I'm not on the fence on this at all, 
is that the executive power is not a source of power that the Commonwealth can rely on here. Because, um, as Tim pointed out just last year, uh, the Commonwealth Parliament passed the Maritime Powers Act that essentially, in, to, to borrow a term from constitutional law, covers the field. In other words, it extinguishes the relevant executive power, which is, uh, after all, a residual power. So the, then the question becomes, does the Maritime Powers Act allow the Commonwealth to do what it's doing here? So uh, we need to look at some of the key provisions in the Act. Um, and so I want to draw your attention to a, a few of them. Uh, first is that um, the, the powers in, in this Act to detain and remove uh, people, as, as the Commonwealth is, is, is attempting to do here, may only be exercised in accordance with particular, very important part of the legislation itself. That's part two, for instance. So I want to draw your attention now to some of the key provisions in part two. It, it says that any use of force we don't know where the force has been used, but if there is any use of force, it must be, quote, necessary and reasonable in the circumstances. And so that is a very important provision for, for, for lawyers to take note of. Secondly, the Australian government can only detain and remove people on foreign vessels in Australia's contiguous zone, as is the case here, if it is either investigating or preventing a contravention of, among other things, Australian uh, immigration law. That, that is the fundamental question. And then we, we need to turn our minds to whether in doing that, uh, the Australian government can, uh, uh, to, to be frank, run roughshod over the general obligation to accord people natural justice. And, and I, I completely endorse um, the comments that uh, Jane made, that simply asking uh, a potential asylum seeker four questions that bear no direct relationship as to whether someone is even seeking asylum, let alone the merits of their claim, is not affording them a fair hearing as to whether or not they are a genuine refugee within uh, the, the legal definition of that term. Uh, George is right. Uh, the High Court authorities do point both ways on this, um, but I would say that the, the stronger view is that it is very, very difficult to exclude uh, the, the, the obligation to afford people natural justice or procedural, procedural fairness, in other words, to give people a fair hearing. Um, and there are a number of cases, not least the Plaintiff S157 case from about 10 years ago where George himself was uh, junior counsel. There's also another really important point. If we agree that the only possible source of lawful authority is the Maritime Powers Act. And if we also agree, and I agree with, with Tim on this point, that the, uh, the, the drafting of that act is not absolutely crystal clear on this point, then we need to go to the basic principles of how we interpret legislation. And there's a really important principle that the High Court set out in a range of cases, including Marbo, and um, perhaps most famously in the Coco against the Queen case, and that is, that the court will not presume that Parliament has intended in its legislation to abrogate, or to use a, a colloquial term, to ride roughshod over Australia's human rights obligations. And if uh, the, the, the Commonwealth's pre preferred approach here is permitted, it would, in my view, ride roughshod 
over Australia's human rights obligations. So, so my own view on this is that the, the Tampa case, the Vardalis case, is of limited relevance here. Um, and the High Court is being invited, and I hope that they take the invitation to consider this as a relatively novel question um, and to be bold uh, in affirming uh, the right to procedural fairness and, uh, and, and, and the principle that our laws should not be just assumed to be intended to abrogate fundamental human rights. Thanks, Ed. Um, thanks, panel. Now, um, we've gone a little bit over, but there's still plenty of time for people to ask questions if they want. So if you just maybe raise your hand if you have a question, and I'll point. Sorry, I don't know people's names, so I'll just point if that's not being rude. Did people hear the question? The question was, what are the rule of law issues that arise in this case? Well, it's, it's hard to think of a, a case that is more fundamentally about the rule of law than this one. I mean, we're talking here about the ability of a government to exercise arbitrary, unchecked power over people at the most vulnerable point of their lives in circumstances where they can be removed to another country, including potentially the country that they are fleeing persecution from. And in terms of the High Court's role, um, you would hope that it would have a role in checking that power, because that's, after all, what the rule of law is most fundamentally about, in providing rights like a fair hearing and the like. And I think you would have to say that if, in the end, the result of this case is that the government can do this without even listening to these people, removing them to a place of persecution at its own whim, without the prospect of realistic review, then you have to ask very serious questions about the, the effectiveness of the rule of law in Australia. <laughs> We've got Queensland bikey laws, and now you've got this case. I know, it's keeping you employed, which is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other questions? Yes. Um, the other convention that we haven't talked about is the International Human Rights Act. Actually, putting these children at risk and using bipedalism in locked rooms with limited medical care. And I'm also concerned who would have answered the court's questions to the children under our laws and what authority would they have to answer those questions? So, for people who didn't hear, the question was about um, whether there's been a violation of the international, uh, so the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and in particular, um, who would have answered the four questions on behalf of the child, and were they authorised to do so? Don't know who wants to. I can, yeah, I can start with that. Um, well, I mean, Liz, it's a, a great point. The, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, in some respects, echoes some of the, the obligations we've already discussed with respect to non-return. Um, but it also contains a really important provision in Article 3, that is that in any decision affecting a child that's made by a, a government authority, the best interests of the child shall be a primary consideration. And I think it would be hard to see how the best interests of a child have... It doesn't have to be the primary consideration, but have even been a primary consideration here. Uh, and in fact, it was, um, it was that very treaty that in the, the case of Teo, the, the High Court noted that, again, when it comes to these questions of statutory interpretation, 
um, you know, we assume that we haven't, that, that unless statute expressly displaces that international obligation, that um, our laws are read in accordance with it. Of course, I, I mean, in terms of who answers the, the questions on behalf of the children, I, I don't know. But I suppose a related point that many of you would be aware of is that in Australia, it's the immigration minister who's appointed as the guardian of asylum seeker children. And that in itself raises a lot of questions about conflict of interest when we know we have a, a stated policy of, of deterrence, um, how one could say that the immigration minister could, on the one hand, act in the child's best interest, while on the other, try and preclude them ever from asserting their uh, right to seek asylum is, is an, you know, a, a very uh, well, obvious question, I think. Yes. Following the federal court case, when they were drafting the maritime provision, um, did, was there any care taken not to cover the field and therefore exclude prerogative power? <coughs> Is there kind of like something strongly within the new legislation which suggests a position on covering the field theft, or is that very much an open question? So for those who didn't hear, the question was whether in the Maritime Powers Act care was taken to ensure that the Act did not cover the field, leaving room for um, powers under executive powers to have a role still. <coughs> Nothing that I've seen. Um, we, we do have counsel uh, in this room, uh, Mr. Williams. Uh, yes, sir. Um, it's, uh, there's a, a very good document out there, the Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee, and they did a report on the Maritime Powers Act, uh, Bill. Uh, and in that, uh, there's a concurrence of dissenting uh, report. Uh, they, they were opposed to the Act at the time because they believed that it was a clear uh, demonstration of the government's will. They also thought that it denied them the, the powers uh, to compel boats and to return asylum seekers. So you've got this irony that the coalition at the time uh, thought that the Maritime Powers Act restricted their, their ability of what they could do. Thanks, Jay. Are there any other <coughs> questions? Yes? Oh, well, the question for Ed, uh, Bob Carl, He said when he was that when he was foreign minister, there was not one single instance of a Tamil returned to Sri Lanka suffering any harm. Mm. No, 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 no. It's exactly what you. It's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Secondly, a question for the whole panel, if these proceedings were unsuccessful, uh, would the government be uh, in a position to return asylum seekers to Australia? So just for those who didn't hear, the first part of the question was uh, referred to Bob Carr's recent comments uh, about uh, Sri Lanka now being a safe uh, place for Tamils and um, the questioner asked uh, Ed to comment on that and the second part of the question was if the government is successful in these uh, proceedings, whether it would be able to return these asylum seekers to Sri Lanka? Um, in relation to the first question, 
I said this with the greatest respect to um, former Premier and Prime Minister Carr. So sometimes, though, we confuse what we want the situation to be with how the situation really is. And I, I, I guess all I can say is, as a lawyer, um, as, a, as a legal organisation that takes a very methodical approach, all we do is follow the evidence. And the evidence, unfortunately, um, does not support Mr Carr's position. Um, I, I, quite aside from our own uh, investigation, I point you to the work, um, excellent work, done by Emily Howie of the Human Rights Law Centre down in Victoria, um, that specifically looked at that issue, um, namely uh, the, the, the experience of um, failed asylum seekers, in inverted commas, once they return to Sri Lanka and documented some horrific situations. And you're quite right. There are um, most, if not all, of the countries with which Australia is most frequently aligned, including Canada, including the United States, many, many others, have been absolutely crystal clear on this. That is, that it is not safe, uh, especially for many, many Tamils um, today in Sri Lanka, uh, and especially in the northern parts of um, Sri Lanka. And so um, I, I think the position is, is, is actually quite clear, and I, I haven't seen any evidence that supports um, Mr Carr's position. And look, I'll have a go at answering the second part of the question. What happens if they lose? Well, if they lose, they can be taken to any place that the government wishes to take them to. Uh, and essentially, the government is arguing it has an unbounded discretion to remove them to any place. But I have to say, even if they win the case, it's not really any better. Um, if they win the case, they might come to Christmas Island and then be taken to any place that the Australian government designates as being the place they wish to remove them to, which at the moment is Nauru or PNG, but could be Sri Lanka. In fact, any country. I mean, we already have the mechanism within the Act which actually allows this to happen, which is, which is not part of this whole litigation in that uh, waiting them on Australia's shores is actually not any better outcome. It's simply removal to PMG in all likelihood. And it shows you how the Migration Act itself has been so completely hollowed out that uh, that result uh, resides here. The High Court heard a case earlier this year which I appeared in with Jay called Plaintiff S156 where we argued that you can't designate any place, including the place a person is seeking to flee persecution. Uh, but in fact, the High Court said, yes, that's permissible, noting along the way that this seemed now to be a departure from Australia's uh, compliance with its refugee obligations. But that having been done, that's a matter for Parliament. There's nothing that the High Court can hold Parliament to. We don't have to comply with those obligations. It's a matter of political will, not legal requirement. Does anybody else in the panel want to comment on that last point? I guess the only point I would make is it still doesn't make it lawful under international law. Um, and, and, and George wasn't making that point. I mean, it's still, uh, there are still potential violations of international law. Of course, then we run into the question of, well, so what? Um, most countries that are like Australia, most countries would be, um, would find it too much of a political embarrassment to, to do this at the international level. Already Australia's reputation has been significantly degraded um, on this front. Uh, but whether or not other countries would be prepared to take Australia to the International Court of Justice or issue sanctions or anything like that, I think that's, you know, if the experience of the US is anything to go by, that's not going to happen. Um, but nonetheless, this does have a, a, an effect um, and, you know, perhaps there will be a point at which it, it does become just a step too far. Any more questions? 
Yes. I'm sorry, I just have to apologize in advance because this is a red herring. It was announced by the 20th century, just before, around the same time. What, what, what's the deal there? I mean, you talk about the principle of non refoulement, and they look to have ostensibly been thoroughly refooled. Um, and, uh, and I mean, a lot of them were Sinhalese as well, which is a bit strange. Does anyone know anything more about that? <coughs> So there were 40, um, 41. 41, yeah. 41, I think, yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I don't know what, uh, you know, ha I obviously have not been there following up yes. what's what's happened with them. But um, but again, it's the, they're the same issues that uh, you, and unless you have a rigorous refugee status determination process, we can't say definitively whether or not the obligation of non-refoulement has been breached. Um, but the point is that to have any meaning whatsoever, to, to function, you need to have that refugee status determination uh, procedure in, in place. Um, and, and that's the fundamental problem here. And I think when you know we talk so much, or the government talks so much about deterrence, if you actually had a thorough, efficient, uh, rigorous refugee status determination process and you then ensured that people who don't engage Australia's protection obligations are returned. That's your deterrence mechanism, and that is lawful. It's it's um, consistent with all the things we've been talking about. That would that you know that could be it, and it would be far simpler and far less expensive than the very elaborate uh, policies that we see in place now. And we have it. It's called the Refugee Review Tribunal, and it does a pretty good job. Um, there was another question. Yes, sorry. John. I will say on that, Jay, that's where you run into the problem with the High Court's refusal of special leave in the first Tampa case, that once they're back in Sri Lanka or elsewhere, the likelihood is the High Court will say, outside of our jurisdiction, it's now that country's problem. Well, <laughs> and you should also think about private law remedies as well. Um, there was another question down the front here that I missed. Question for those who didn't hear it is: What is the mood in the nation in relation to these most recent uh, activities? Uh, I'm a former academic, and I'm on a panel with current academics. Uh, former and current academics aren't necessarily the best people to judge. From the and I think you should speak for yourself. George is a man with his finger on the national pulse. So when you're finished, I'm looking forward to hear what George has to say. When you have a, a really, really difficult human rights issue like this, in some ways the worst possible place to try and resolve it is in a court where the issues are distilled into very clinical uh, legal language. Um, nevertheless, we, we've, we've seen at a number of really important turning points in Australia's history that those really important cases can be a turning point because that process of deliberation that only the High Court can, can undertake 
can lead to us taking a pause and thinking more deeply about, uh, thinking more deeply as a community about what we think is right and proper. And uh, I mean, a great example, of course, is the Mabo uh, case mm. and, and our approach to, to native title in Australia. I'm not saying that this will necessarily be uh, another Mabo moment, as we think from a Canva moment, um, but, but I guess there, I am hopeful that, um, that, that this might lead to a rethink in, in the popular mind about um, our approach to the asylum seekers and refugees. Well, I suppose I'll just say, and I'm, I'm glad to see your optimism has not been beaten out of you completely. And uh, look, my sense is that the, the Tampa events really crystallised in a political and public sense um, a particular way of dealing with these issues. We're still part of that narrative, that is that the government is able and ought to be able to take whatever action it wishes to deal with asylum seekers, including of the most extreme kind. And until I think that political narrative starts to shift, I think it's going to be difficult. But I think if the government loses the case, I can't see the opposition seeking to take advantage of that. In all likelihood, it will cooperate with the government to pass legislation to make sure this can be done in future situations. And I think, unfortunately, you only have to look at the Malaysian plan case of the Gillard government. That led to much more extreme legislation, which has enabled PNG. And so sometimes Ed is right, sometimes it actually enables even more extreme action. Look, I, I really hope Ed is right, but I don't yet see the seeds of change. And this obviously, whereas Jane's centre is going to uh, help change this over the longer term, but it is a longer term debate. And um, I don't think we're there yet. Andrew? So either way, win or lose, the government will still have the power, in a sense, to do what it wants, as far as the refugees are concerned. Is there what should we be hoping for? Is there a chance that the High Court could either rule that there has to be fair process or that international obligations do apply? Do these likely outcomes of the case? So just for those who didn't hear, the question is really what's the best that we can hope for from this case? I think the best outcome in terms of policy and the future would certainly be the High Court recognising real limits on this power and reading also into the legislation and the constitution that these people have a right to natural justice to be heard, their claims tested. Um, and that would be a positive development. There's no doubt about that. But in the end, until domestically we find a way around the fact we're designating countries and sending these people to other places, mm. PNG and Nauru, um, that's just a stop along the way. Um, so I think it's part of the picture, but I don't think you could say, it's just you can't say a win for these people is going to lead them to the outcome they'd like. That is, coming to Australia and settling here as refugees if their claims are found to be valid. That's not likely to happen. Got time for one or two quick more questions. Uh, lady. So for those who didn't hear, the question was um, about the four questions and um, the, the proposition was that surely somebody must have 
snuck in while they were being asked the four questions on seeking protection. Um, how do we know uh, whether that happened? What uh, were the answers recorded? And also included in the question there was uh, whether or not um, they're on Australian territory because they're on board an Australian uh, government vessel. So maybe Tim, start with you on that. Um, so we, we assume this enhanced screening is happening on board this customs vessel. Um, it's not strictly part of Australian territory. But as Jane explained, uh, it is an area within Australian government control and jurisdiction. Uh, so Australia's, um, Australia does have, as a matter of international law, uh, obligations to, under the Refugee Convention and other international law uh, in respect of these, these people. Um, I mean, Jane is probably better placed to, to deal with the, the enhanced screening process and the legitimacy of that. I mean, I, I've just had visions of these government interrogators sticking their fingers in their ears when when <laughs> the, the refugees are telling them things they don't, they're not asking about. Sorry, I'm not asking about that. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty scary Kafkaesque picture, isn't it? You know, asking these four questions and not being able to um, provide any additional information. Um, Look, I'm, I mean, I'm not certain as to whether more was said. I mean, part, the other thing is, I, you know, I don't know the, the context, but whether people thought this is just an initial interview. I mean, the other, and the other thing too is that, you know, contrary to popular belief, asylum seekers aren't kind of coached up to say, you know, say this, these are the magic words. Um, and if you imagine you've been bobbing around on a, a boat for some time, you're probably quite disoriented. Uh, if you fled what, you know, a number of say, people say they have fled from, then you may well be traumatised. You're not in a position where you're, you, you may be fearful of authority. All these things compound the situation that you're in such that you're, you're not there going, all right, here's my case. I prepared it earlier and I'll just tell you. Um, again, what we know from the US experience, they, they came up with some really quite elaborate tests. Like for the Haitians, it was the shout test. If you yelled and screamed loudly enough and said, I'm seeking asylum, they may screen you. For the Cubans, there was this wet foot, dry foot policy, and there was once a case about whether the Cuban who had set foot on a boat, uh, on a bridge that had collapsed, whether the bridge was actually land or sea, and therefore whether you triggered the right to seek asylum. Again, domestic law fiction. In international law, that, you know, that's quite clear. Just with respect to embassies, there's not a right to claim asylum in embassies in, for, for refugees. This is why asylum seekers can't just rock up to an embassy in their own country. And in fact, um, I mean, there are a few countries in Latin America in particular which recognise this concept. But generally speaking, there's not a right of asylum in an embassy. And part of it is to do with the fact that to engage the Refugee Convention, you need to be outside your country of origin. Mm. When you may remember the Bakhtiari boys, a group of brothers, asylum-seeking brothers, um, a decade or so ago. They made their way to the British consulate. When they got inside, they said, um, we are now in the UK, and we therefore invoke the European Convention on Human Rights, which says you cannot send us to a place where we would be at risk of inhuman or degrading treatment. If you hand us over to the Australian authorities, they're going to take us back to Woomera, and that's inhuman or degrading. Clever argument. 
But there, and I think probably to sidestep certain political issues, the court said, we're going to treat you like fugitives under extradition law. And unless handing you over to the Australian authorities exposes you to some imminent risk of severe harm, then we can hand you over. And so they handed them back. And they said, we, we're not going to judge detention conditions in Woomera, but we do know that you're not a, you, you won't die if we sort of hand you over right now. So uh, that, that's the kind of a related point. Now, there's one more question over here, and that will be the last question. And I'll come to you in a second, but I'm going to actually um, take the right um, to, uh, or exercise the right to ask a follow-up question if I can. Uh, what I'm wondering about these four questions, which is about what's your name, what's your preferred language, what's your country of origin, is whether or not they are designed not so much to screen asylum seekers in or out, but whether they are rather designed to feed the policy decision that was made apparently on the 1st of July by the National Security Committee that the Tamils aboard this ship should not be taken to Australia as a national security policy matter. And I'm wondering whether uh, it's designed to um, answer that question, whether they, whether they answer the question of people who should be taken as a national security matter to some other country, and given that it then becomes a national security policy question, whether that uh, makes these um, executive uh, power sort of unbreachable, really? Um, I don't really know. I don't really understand the enhanced screening questions. They seem to bear, as I said, no relationship to the question that we think that they're trying to get at, which is, is this person potentially uh, a refugee within the legal definition of that term? The only basis that I can think of that would allow uh, the Australian government to reach a conclusion based on the questions that they're asking is if they took the view that a person who claims to be from Sri Lanka could not possibly be a refugee. That seems to me to be the only possible basis on which those four questions would make any sense as a form of screening enhanced or otherwise. But, not, but it might be different if it's security screening rather than refugee screening is my, is my point. And I'm just wondering what the significance of this decision on the 1st of July is. I don't know if anyone else that. George, do you want to have a go at that? Well, I mean, certainly the, the Migration Act has been amended now to mean that you're not eligible to be recognised as a refugee if you are denied a security clearance. So, so perhaps there's something there, but I suppose the short answer is we just don't know. Mm. It's the way Operation Sovereign Borders works that we are denied the most basic information to even understand the processes of being undergone. So it's a reasonable supposition, but uh, we don't know. Mm. Well, I'll come to the last question. Sorry for hijacking it there. Well, I suppose the short answer is it can go on for as long as the injunction is in place, and that will presumably be maintained until the High Court has decided the matter, and it's likely to have a hearing perhaps in early August, so quite soon. <coughs> but uh, you would imagine the High Court will give us an expedited judgment, given that it normally takes up to six months to render a decision. You can't imagine that they would do that in this case. In fact, you would think, as in other urgent applications, you may even get at least a result that week or within a couple of weeks. So I think it's, it's quite foreseeable that this would be resolved one way or the other within, say, the next four weeks. That, that would be my guess, anyway. On, on your second question as to if some tragedy were to befall someone, <coughs> serious illness or even death, 
um, there could well be private law remedies mm. that, that could then be pursued. Um, uh, remedies around false imprisonment and trespass of person and so on. And I, I'm sure the lawyers are, are thinking about those as well. All right, well, um, that just leaves it to me to say thank you very much um, to the panel um, who've given a very, very thoughtful and deeply informed um, insight into the issues that um, are going to come before the court in the next um, few weeks. Um, and um, just before asking you to um, thank the panel in the usual way, I'd like to thank everybody very much for attending as well and um, having uh, such a high level of interest in these, um, in these issues. So please thank the panel. And on behalf of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, I would like to thank Stephen and Gilbert and Tobin so much for hosting tonight's event. We had, a, as you can see, we had a tremendous response. There were others who would have liked to come, uh, and we're just so grateful that you could host it for us. And I have a small gift, Stephen, for you and each of the panelists, which I'll present after this. Thank you. Thank you.